I have some really important updates that I need to share with you. Oh God. Okay. I'm afraid, but go for it. So we've all been doom scrolling. We've all been checking our phone. We have been looking for updates and the people have finally spoken and the people have said that in this nation, we will not accept an inferior candidate. We will not accept someone who is here to just get engaged to the first man that she meets. We are going to evict an important person from a house that means a lot to our nation. Wow. I can't even imagine. Claire has left the La Quinta. Oh my God. Dark days. <laughs> Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Wow. And Allison, it's like, we thought this day would never come. I mean, I thought I was going to be saying that and for a different reason this week. I, we should know, listeners, that we are recording when we still don't know the outcome of the election. So we'll just throw that out there. Yes. So for our own sanity and our own purposes, as far as we know, the year is 1944 and FDR is president. Yes. We are digging into the world of Meet Molly this week. So we are going back to our girl and we hope yours, Molly McIntyre, who is living on the home front during World War II. Before we do that, we do just have to talk a little bit about another war that was raging at uh, La Quinta in a secret location on the West Coast. I feel as though, you know, our nation is deeply divided at this time as it always has been. I do also feel like the decisiveness that has led Bachelor Nation over this season is refreshing in a way. In a way, yes, but it's also one of the most frustrating seasons I've ever watched. Last night, I was screaming at my own television, and it was not election results, shockingly. It was watching Claire basically exit herself from The Bachelor. But what was more astounding was that the structure of the show is such that... So she meets this man. She met him before COVID happened. He was one of the, the contestants she was introduced to before they shut down. So clearly she was stalking his social media this entire time. That's my theory. And she pretty much admits this. And she claims they've had no contact before La Quinta. And then she he walks out of the limo. She's like, I just met my husband period. And then the whole show, she refuses to really take seriously any other man. And then in this week's episode, we watched her break up with literally all the other contestants and then hook up with Dale. And then the next day, and this was truly the crazy part where I screamed at my television, Chris Harrison, instead of saying like, Hey, Claire, maybe you want to pump the brakes here. Like things moving a little fast and you know, like it's kind of a tumultuous time and this and that. And, and she's like, yeah, no. Instead he's like, I'm going to call Neil Lane. I'm going to FaceTime Neil Lane, get an engagement ring. Obviously Dale should propose to you. Cause of course, like feminism doesn't exist in the bachelor. And she's like, of course, that's the natural next step. Like, I just told him I loved him last night. We've never been out on a date. He should propose to me. If I may, many people have wasted our time in the past two or so years, particularly within Bachelor Nation. I do respect that unlike a Peter Weber, who also met the person he ultimately ended up with prior to being on The Bachelor, a person that he met in a supposed chance encounter, also in a hotel, Claire is not wasting our time. 
I think her age is like benefiting her in that moment where she's kind of like, I'm not here to make friends and mm-hmm. I'm not here to play games. She's kind of like, I'm into that. I'm into that guy. That's it. I'm not going to go through with these like weird dates. I will say the only person I feel sorry for, is she goes on a one-on-one with this man who she forces to have a very awkward conversation about love languages with. And then he reveals a lot of childhood trauma as does she. And then like he never gets an apology from her that's like, hey, I was never really serious about you, but I did make you be vulnerable with me for ratings. Yes. That was rough. I mean, do I make you be vulnerable with me on this show for ratings? Sure. But it's like <laughs> you kind of know that's happening, right? You know, but yeah. So, I mean, we're going to have to see what goes on. Like Tasha emerged at the end of the episode this week. And so now the men can decide if they want to stay for Tasha or go home. And it's like, where are you going home to? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the influencer is as needed as it ever was during a pandemic. So I think they all have a role to play. You have to give Claire kudos for knowing what she wants, for pursuing it. I also think she read the future pretty quickly and clearly and saw that there were no real dates to be had. She could only visit the spa that was in the complex of the La Quinta so many times. So really, what else does she have? going on or to go to. And I think she kind of read the room and said, you know, we have men who are only capable of a helicopter or hot tub date. And I'm here in a hotel and I need a forever sweet mate. So we need to move, move it out. I think you're right. Like when you realize that you will actually have to speak and listen to these men Um, that would give me pause. And like, if I, if I can't have an airplane date where it's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't hear you. We're like 10,000 feet up. Like I can't hear a word you're saying to me. You look beautiful. I'm just going to appreciate you from afar with these headphones on. Like if you actually have to have like for real conversations with these guys, I would be like, yeah, I'm going to, you're going to be like dissed and dismissed immediately. I do think that if Molly McIntyre were on bachelor, she would know right away and she would move. She would be the most conniving bachelorette in franchise history. That's all I can say. And, you know, like these are dark times and like watching The Bachelorette and like various other things like can help. Um, I don't know what you're taking in these days, Allison, but like certainly rereading this book also helped me. What are you, what can you recommend before we dive into the ultimate recommendation, Meet Molly? I just want listeners to know that you have made Uh a few quick maritime references now because you are asking me this question in part so that you can reveal that you love the deadliest catch That is not true. I, I know you're also asking because you're genuinely curious. So part of what I've been really into is I got a subscription to the Lifetime Movie Network for a dollar. And so that's, you know, that's not sponsored. That one's for free. Um, a dollar just, for, how, excuse me, what? A dollar for the entire network for what amount of time? So a dollar per month after my promotional trial runs out. And so, wow. I mean, I, okay. I can't fathom a better way. You can't get a candy bar for that now. So... I've really just been enjoying essentially watching the same film over and over again with slightly different tweaks and just kind of seeing like, you know, what are they going to do with this kind of random assemblage today? I watched a film last night. Film is generous about. I was going to say, wow, that was kind of you. Yeah. a, a, A lethal influencer. And so, I mean, that was quite, quite a thing. So I think I enjoy art that knows what it is and who it's for. And I appreciate the people who worked on those cinematic masterpieces that were shot in two and a half days. 
I respect that. I love a certain kind of lifetime. I like the classics, um, the Betty Broderick story, which is mm-hmm. two parts, three hours each. It's real commitment, but it's <laughs> worth it. And Mother May Sleep with Danger, which is Tori Spelling's finest hour, um, perhaps if such a thing exists. That sounds, that all sounds very positive. See, I'm modeling what I would like <laughs> in return, which is positive reinforcement. Yes. You know, I can't even speak about what I'm going through because you've shamed me and you've censored me and you told me I can't talk about what's been happening in my dreams because you said it's like too dark and I understand that, but it's like, I'm going through it. I don't know why I'm watching Deadliest Catch again. It's the closest I'll ever come to Moby Dick and that's fine with me. I've had periods in my life when, (laughs) not proud of this, but it's like that show, like, I don't know when I'm really going through it being on the crab ship, it's like, that speaks to me. (laughs) No, I'm really happy. I really, I think we all have something different. I spent a large portion of election night watching a television program called Homicide Hunter, which is a true crime, you know, episode by episode. But I also spent part of it rereading this book. And it's a classic. We'll talk a bit about how that experience was. I absolutely support your deadliest catch frightening affinity because I think we all we all have a show like that I just sent you a text I was like should I be worried about me real question I don't know anymore like I, said, I was yeah. here by myself you were like <laughs> yeah basically I don't know I'm worried about me but it's like you know what in these times if that's what I need to get me through like you know just check in with me that's all I'm saying like Maybe I come out of this fishing season okay. I don't know. I, I am so happy for people for whom watching baking or engaging in baking is soothing. I just know like I've had to cut myself out of a lot of conversations recently because I just can't do it and I won't do it. For me, it's, a, it's an ethical and philosophical thing. I'm not going to spend that time in my kitchen. I don't want to watch you doing it. I don't want to watch people hunt. I don't want to watch them fish and I wow. don't want to watch them make a cake. And that's my limitation as a person. That's fine. But it's like, you know that about yourself. And so that's good. It's like we're on a journey of self-knowledge. You've discovered that about yourself. That's great. I know what I know for myself is we're back watching vintage episodes or seasons of Great British Bake Off because that's what Anna likes to watch when she's stressed out. And it's like, I can appreciate people making something beautiful. I know I will never attempt any of what I'm about to see, but I can respect the creativity that's happening. That's sort of how I can get into it, but I respect you. I think we feel 100%. that way about the mind and the oeuvre of Valerie Tripp as well. Um, this was like, you know, like, I guess like there's a Lifetime movie you might see that's like the, like I'm in love with a serial killer. And it's like, that's how I feel about Valerie Tripp. Yeah. And so I just want to get into talking about what I'm considering like the future inspiration of my screenplay trip of a lifetime and that's meet molly let's do it. it i love it this episode is brought to you by podcorn podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships what does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So Meet Molly first came out in 1986. And as Listeners of this show for a while will know Molly was part of the original trio that included Kirsten Larson, Samantha Parkington, and of course, Molly McIntyre. And so these women span different time periods. Interestingly, a lot of these books have begun in a year that ends in four. Molly's book actually goes towards 1944. So it starts in 1943 and ends, the sixth book arc will end in 1944 and it was written by Valerie Tripp and a team of illustrators. So we can talk a bit about that depending on which version you have. Um, should I give us kind of like the background a little bit? Please do. Okay. So I'm not going to start at the very beginning, but Molly Jean McIntyre was born wow. April 22nd, 1934. She is an American girl from Jefferson County, Illinois, which I did map to find out. So With this book, we have a few different descriptions, and I think they are revealing for different reasons. So I'm going to share share with you a few. For Molly McIntyre, life seems full of change. It's 1944, and the world is at war. It's actually 43, however. Her father is far away, caring for wounded soldiers. Her mother is busy working for the Red Cross. And everyone in America is so serious and practical that glamorous Halloween costumes are hard to get. Molly's special hula skirt is a huge success until Ricky, her pesty big brother, plays a mean trick. Molly and her friends are determined to get back at him. One mean trick leads to another until the fighting goes too far. <laughs> May I share one more? It's brief. So when was that one from? Are so you that, say after? That's from just like a generic description on Amazon. Okay. Got and it. then there are some that are attached to the publisher. As as folks might know, this book came out in 86. My book is not from them. I have the 2004 reboot. That's the book that I happen to own. Okay. Nine-year-old Molly McIntyre has been pouting for two hours because the housekeeper, Mrs. Guilford, has forbidden Molly to leave the dinner table until she eats her mashed turnips. And Molly hates turnips. She reflects that if her father were home, she wouldn't have to eat turnips. And then one, one last one. <laughs> they're, you know, they're similar, but I like the way they mm-hmm. do different spins. While her father is away fighting in World War II, Molly finds her life full of change as she eats terrible vegetables from the Victory Garden and plans revenge on her brother for ruining her Halloween. Wow. Here's what I take. Some of these were written by women who identify with Molly and some of them were not because they are different degrees of generous as to her behavior. I would say, yeah, that's a hundred percent accurate. You can, you can feel the saltiness of people who don't understand what Molly McIntyre is all about. Yeah. Jumping off the page. I also think something that's revealing and gives us the rough outline of this book The chapter that we first meet Molly, she is sitting at the dinner table in the kitchen, not in the dining room, but she's careful to note, and she's being forced to eat turnips. So the first chapter is called Turnips, 
It's a surprisingly long chapter. Um, the next chapter is called Hula Dancers, which we'll talk about. The chapter after that is called Trick or Treat. And then it ends with war, exclamation point. Um, and it should be noted that, that Molly is not actually seeing battles. She lives in Illinois. She lives sort of close to St. Louis and about four and a half hours south of Chicago. I was trying to figure out, like, is this Way rural? to flex those mapping skills Thank into you. it. I'm impressed. You know, it's just sort of like there's so many layers to this book, you know, like war exists in the family, like, you know, war in the family space, like we can get into that. I do think we need to start at the beginning with the turn up. Yeah. Well, I guess we should start earlier than that. I mean, you <laughs> described sitting down on election night with this book. When was the last time you met Molly and what was it like to meet her again? We've been on the record as Molly's this entire show without really remembering what the heck went on in these books or why we felt that way. So like, what was this like for you? So, I mean, we've approached this moment with caution. You know, we've been concerned about getting back here. So I first met Molly when I myself was eight years old and desperately wanted to look more like Molly. The bangs came shortly thereafter for me, just like Molly. The glasses took a little bit longer. Now regret that because it's very hard to wear a mask and glasses simultaneously. So I first met Molly on Christmas Eve, and this book, the first part at least, was read to me. And I'll just say, going back and rereading the first few chapters of this book made me feel probably the most calm and happy that I've felt in a while. Rereading these first few chapters, um, Molly was having an experience that I had quite a bit of as a child, which was vegetables were very important to my parents and you sat until they were eaten and you had to figure it out. So you had to kind of power through it. My parents also very much when I was a, what we would call a tween embraced a diet that had a lot of turnip. There was a lot of convincing that turnip fries were as good as French fries and they are not, nor have they ever been. So I've had this experience of just like piles of turnip getting cold and having to eat it. And I'm not claiming like this, this makes me special or I, I had a tough childhood. I very clearly did not. That said, I was like, I've lived this and there are few things worse to me than cold turnip on the plate. Like again, very lucky to not have food insecurity, but cold turnip is rough. Like Molly got that. All turnip is rough. Like there is no situation in which a turnip is going to like give you a good day. Like for me personally. And I know there's people probably listening who are like, I grow turnips every year. I love turnips. Like turn up for what, you know, turn up for not for me. I'll say that. (laughs) I mean, I have like a dark memory of going to Ireland for the first time to visit my relatives. And my mom basically before we went there was like, you will eat whatever you are served and you will eat all of it because they've been so kind to us, et cetera, et cetera. And they're lovely people. And we got there and like, we decided to make some American food for you. And I was like, this is amazing. And like, we made lasagna. They made a lasagna that prominently featured turnip. And I don't understand what that was about, but I know that I ate all of it and I don't want to eat turnips ever again. It's not a good time for me. So it's like, I'm, I have a visceral like memory of that when I was rereading it. And you're right. Like there's so much joy in reading this book because the hijinks are like really high. Like Val, (laughs) this is Val's like crowning moment. Like to me, it's like Val has taken everything she learned along the way and she's thrown it into this book 
And I remember like sitting down with this book that my older brother's name is Rick and he went by Ricky when we were kids. So it's like she had a brother named Ricky. I also had glasses that I hated to the point that I memorized the eye chart when I took my driving test so I wouldn't have glasses on my license. Like shout out Harry. to Connecticut DMV. I wear them now. So I'm just saying like I've righted that wrong. But I had bangs. I loved her style. Like I loved being able to talk to my grandmother about Molly's world because like I remember talking to my grandmother about Victory Gardens, which were also in this book. So to come back to Molly was such a pleasure. And I think the the biggest surprise was kind of how sassy she is or mm-hmm. just like, this is not a girl who's even trying to pretend to be nice. Like one of the things that I always think about you when we first met is that you told me this story about how like when you were in high school, you were told like not to be nice or like the disadvantage of being nice versus kind. And I always think about that, that like to me, Samantha, looking back, she's a very nice Mm. nice girl or like manners really matter to her and so on. Molly's like not even playing with that. No, (laughs) no, she's not not. remotely like when she, we get her and we open on a dinner scene. First of all, I love the portraits, love the vignettes. I feel like Brad was done wrong. I'll just say that. I don't know what yours looks like. This is what mine looks like. I know this doesn't help you listeners, but like he looks stunned. Like he looks like he's been shown a bright light. It's not right. Like he should, he should look cuter. I don't know. I'm just, I think he's cute. I think he deserved a better portrait. Anyway, we open on this dinner scene and Molly's like not playing games. No, first of all, before we even get to dinner, we have Molly's internal monologue about her Halloween costume. And this is when I was like, this is sending me like I sent Allison today, the meme of Kermit the frog where he's like facing himself (laughs) with a hood. And it's like when you're worse, like part of yourself takes over. And I was like, that's me with Molly because Molly's scheming to convince her friends to be the ugly stepsisters. So she could be Cinderella. I was like, I've done like, I've been that person. (laughs) There's something that transcends time, too, about, you know, there's the specificity of the family needing to eat this food from the Victory Garden as part of their patriotic duty. And I think there is also something that transcends time of being forced to do something you don't want and being guilted in a very specific way that you shouldn't be behaving as you are. And I love that the woman who's prepared the food for her, her back is turned. And so we see Molly just sort of perfectly at the end of the table, pouting in front of this huge pile. I also laughed out loud. So Mrs. Guilford, we're going to talk about her, but Mrs. (laughs) Guilford um, is also like bringing in the father a lot as an extra hammer of guilt because he's serving in the war in England. And so she sort of speaks directly to Molly and she says, polite children do not refer to food as stuff. The vegetable, which you are lucky enough to have on your plate is mashed turnip. And I guess it's like, I think we know that in her heart, Guilford knows this is junk, but she's selling it. I mean, she's going so deep. Like she's trying to make this seem like it's the opportunity of a lifetime or it's like you do this or nothing else. Like she leans so deep into the guilt trip. But also Molly is leaning very deeply into the magical thinking that like this very normal kid thing, like you say, that sort of transcends time wouldn't be happening if her dad was not in the war. Like on page five, she says, 8.46 p.m. None of this would have happened if dad were home. And it's like, what? Like, likely it probably would have happened, but it would have been resolved sooner because maybe dad in person guilt is bigger than dad at war guilt or like that hammer hits differently. But I don't know that like A equals B here, but she's making these connections. (laughs) Yes. 
And her life has changed quite a bit because part of why the housekeeper is there is there's kind of a vacuum in the household. Her father is away and her mother is working a lot and extra. And so you kind of understand as an adult within six pages that it's not really about the turnips. It's about Molly feeling like she's not having fun. She hopes she would have, she's not getting what she wanted. She wants this big fancy Halloween and it's not really available to her, but I think where this chapter goes that's really smart is her mother really kind of turns it around by making the turnips basically into something else by adding a ton of cinnamon and sugar. And like, I have, I have literally been fed that as a way to eat turnips. So, but does that really improve the taste? Like adding butter and cinnamon, does that really do the trick? Because I'm not sure there's anything that would make me say like, okay, like this is sort of fine. Well, and I think part of what it does, it's a concession, right? And I I think part of where this book is interesting and where the ending is both sort of clever and, and maybe a bit over the top is this book is about Molly learning how to deal with conflict. And whether that conflict is with friends or it's friction with people who are, you know, acquaintances of hers, friction within her family and sibling rivalry, especially. It's about Molly learning how to navigate those things. And the book is sort of sillier than I remember. It's funnier. I think what was really smart about it is zooming in and spending so many pages on this particular incident with the turnip. I think maybe I kind of fell in love with this character because I wasn't rushed into meeting her. There are books that go so fast and we're not going fast here. Like really only two things happen in this book. Right. She eats turnip and she gets dressed up. Like there really are not many. (laughs) It's not that deep. But I, yeah. But what I like about it though, is that compared to, I think some of the other books we've read, we have so much of her internal life. So even though like the actual action is somewhat limited, I feel like we were sort of very gradually ushered into the internal life of this nine-year-old at a very specific place in time. And also the structure of this book itself kind of gives you a sense of the class dynamic too. Like, yes, this is a war story of a family, but it's like the the conflict here is like the housekeeper isn't letting me do what I want to do. It's like you live in a house with a housekeeper. Your dad's a doctor. Like he's not just an infantryman in the army. Um, And what's interesting too is like, the book sets up a really interesting power dynamic between the mom and the housekeeper because really it's the mom who is, gets to be the hero and the peacemaker and the good cop because she's out at work all day and she's the one who gets to make the decision as the head of household to use a little of their cinnamon ration or their sugar to make the turnips edible, like in a way that the housekeeper probably wouldn't have felt empowered to do so, or was like kind of just like tough it out. Molly, like I probably lived through world war one, like stop. Oh, Guilford. Yeah. Guilford. You kidding me? But, but it's like she, the mom gets to be the one who's the peacemaker at the end of the book. So in a weird way, it's like everyone misses the dad, but he's like this absent presence that becomes almost like saint-like in his absence. And you literally get an illustration that could have been ripped from little women Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of like everyone curled around mom reading a letter from dad. So it is like sort of asking the mom to stand in, like we'll get into the peak into the past and how it talks about women like entering the workforce. But I think this book actually offers a really interesting presentation in which the mom actually enters sort of like in the politics of the family, the role of the head of household. And what does that look like? We have yet to read a book. I think Felicity is the closest where both parents are present for the entirety of the book. Um, Felicity 
both her parents are there for all of the different books, but there is like the hint that the mother may pass away. So there's sort of like a, a haunting sense that she might um, be out of the picture. We have yet to read one of these books where across the six, both parents are there, which hmm. I think is a really interesting reflection on well, it was probably a decision to not make these nuclear families in the way that people might have understood it, but focusing on moments of crisis where for personal or broader national reasons, both parents are not there for the nine or 10 year old girl for the whole series. Hmm. But I wonder too, like what's with the casting of Mrs. Guilford as the housekeeper instead of saying, hey, grandma's living with us Mm. while dad's away. Because I think that that changes the calculus a little bit in the family because you can't really step to grandma and be like, hey, grandma, like this is disgusting. And like Molly's just like out with it. Like it's not subtle. Like she's like, "Uh uh-uh, no. And Miss Guilford's also like not having it. Like this woman has seen things. I don't know what she's seen, but she's seen things. But it's different that it's like this woman is an employee of the family and we get flashbacks. So we know like she's been with them when the dad was home. Yeah. Like, cause the dad has nicknames for her and all this stuff. Well, I think what part of what that might be doing is this is really the last generation of people in the United States where there was a class, particularly of white people who had domestic servants. I mean, we, we can call her different things, but part of what happens after the war with the influx of tools that people then use themselves as opposed to hiring people to doing things like washing machines, replacing women who do laundry for the most part. This is really kind of that last gasp of people who can't afford it choosing to hire people to work for them all the time. They're not mm-hmm. that wealthy, but they're able to afford a Mrs. Guilford. Yeah, I think that's an important point. There's a kind of hint too, and I'm not sure if it was just how I read it, that um, Molly's father had a really long relationship with Mrs. Guilford. I felt like almost hinting as, no, not in a weird way, like that she was part of his childhood. Oh, interesting. And that that might just be how I chose to read it. I know that there's a supplemental that gets more into her backstory. And I was like, I don't have the time this week with the Republic in peril, but I need Guilford's intel at some point. Um, I also kind of loved um, Molly being both acutely aware of what the turnips mean to Guilford, but also kind of thinking, you know, she's a little bit frustrated by it. And I love that when she and her mother kind of resolve things, Molly smiled, the turnips are gone. Mom was not mad. Mrs. Guilford wouldn't think that Molly was ruining her war effort. Thanks, mom, she said, as she gave her mother a hug, walked carefully up the stairs to bed. I really love this page, and I love that it ends with her dreaming of wearing the long, floaty pink squirt skirt that she wishes she could have for Halloween, um, because I think it gets at the way that like children are both of the world and making their own world all the time. Mm, I think and that's a really important point, yeah. Something I, I come across like so much in so many different ways is like people who are teenagers in the 19-teens or teens during World War II when I look at like school records or um, I came, I've come across now a few different times people who were like the equivalent of tweens as we would say today during the last final years of the suffrage movement. And several times now have seen them talking about how they had a teacher or some person in their life who was like very committed to women's suffrage and how they would be in a parade or they would accept a rose from this person kind of humoring them Hmm. and, and kind of like that it, 
that they understood enough to know that these activities didn't mean as much to them as these women in their lives. And I think that's kind of an interesting parallel here where Molly really is not invested in the victory garden, but understands that an adult in her life has told her it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. Cause we get also descriptions of all of them working in the garden with her, which I'm sure the mom required of them, but also it's like, they know enough from like this, the hours they've spent with her in the garden to know, like, this is not a drill to this woman. Like she takes this extremely seriously. And I'm sure like, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but like with the histories of the gardens themselves, like, I think there's mixed understandings of like a lot of people, I think we read back onto these gardens that everyone was doing out of patriotism when Mm -hmm. like they were probably doing out of like just wanting to provide food for their family. But regardless of the reason this clearly like she has a lot wrapped up in this garden and I would love to write a book someday that's like Miss Guilford and her garden that's like almost like a Mrs. Dalloway but like you know like maybe I collaborate with Valerie reach out to her and I'm like (laughs) like she grew the garden herself opening line just throwing that out there but you know like I feel like what's interesting too is that we get this sort of like world of women in the kitchen moment where it's like something that sort of struck me about that scene that you just read is that Molly talking with her mom about this thing that she thinks is going to get her in trouble actually allows the mom to share something of her own childhood because she shares an anecdote about how she didn't want to eat sardines when Mm. she was a kid, which like no shade. I wouldn't want to do that either. And she wrapped them up in a napkin and tried to hide it after dinner. And then her cats were climbing all over her because they could smell the sardines. And so her like ruse was revealed and whatever. And they both laugh like Molly gets to see for a second like, oh, my mom was a girl at one point. Like my mom was like me. And it's this incredible bonding moment that actually is like very like almost choked me up because that's what these books did for me. Like mm-hmm. they were a bridge to like women in my life that I wanted to know and to know me, like my mom and my grandmother. But something that made me laugh in the scene about the mom is like, I think Molly's her favorite and this is my evidence. <laughs> um, so Molly says in that same scene, everything is so different with dad gone. Nothing is the way it used to be anymore. The war has changed things, said Mrs. McIntyre, but some things are still the same. Isn't Ricky still Ricky? (laughs) He sure is, said Molly. Still dumb old Ricky. And you're still my Ollie Molly, said Mrs. McIntyre, and I'm still me. And it's like, this is a fascinating moment where Molly's just called her son dumb, and she doesn't say, hey, Molly, that's your brother. We're not going to speak about him that way. She's like, and you're still my Molly, and I'm still me, like, moving on. There's also several more siblings in this family, and I'm I'm not saying that I'm trying to reclaim their place. There's Jill, who's 14. Yep. We also have Brad, who you've mentioned previously, who's five, and it has a, a pretty rough haircut. So extremely rough. And he gets as his bio, Molly's five-year-old brother, a little pest, in comparison to Ricky, Molly's 12-year-old brother, a big pest. That's all we get. Which I think is is sort of classic and endemic to these books that brothers are sort of always annoying, right? Like the yes. brothers are always sort of <laughs> troublesome, except for Uncle Guard, who's the best brother to have ever lived. I I think what was interesting too is seeing Molly with her friends. Um, so around page 19, we kind of get a scene where she's walking around with her friends. And it's so similar in so many ways. And and I'm not saying this to say that these books are just sort of ripping off each other. I love how things really are similar across the series. Like this scene of her and her friends reminded me so much of 
the kind of friendship politics that Addie has to learn how to negotiate when she becomes a student. And in the same way that Kirsten, in probably what's one of my favorite scenes of all time, is warned that the toilet is dangerous like a minute before she arrives at school. (laughs) Because I just am so that friend. Yes. I wondered how you felt about this scene, actually, because we meet Allison, who's a neighbor, but she spells it with one L. So like your thoughts on that? I think it's fascinating that until rereading this, I've literally never thought about this character. Which That's I, so weird. I have never, I've never, I did not remember this character. I did not think of her. To me, Allison with one L is a different name. I, I can see that. Yes. I know this is a thing about which you feel strongly. So I immediately clocked this. I also just <laughs> immediately felt bad for this person because she's basically been convicted without a crime. Like Molly and her friends hate her. And it's like super like unclear why, where she's genuinely like, like, what are you guys going to be for Halloween? And they're like, we can't tell you like, no, we're not going to tell you it. You know, it's a, it's a surprise. And then they ask her what she's going to be. She says an angel and Molly, Linda and Susan were suddenly very quiet. Molly was jealous she was sorry she had even asked Allison. An angel, what a great idea. Allison was sure to look wonderful with a halo over her ho- golden hair. It was very hard to have Allison for a friend. Allison was an only child and her parents were rich and gave her everything that anyone could want. It's like, Val, you're slapping us in the face with this exposition, but like, I, I accept. Allison didn't mean to brag about the things she had, but just by telling the truth, she managed to make everyone resent her. And it's like, that's so true. She doesn't brag. She's not a brat. Like, she seems like a perfectly fine person. And Linda is the Rachel Dratch of the friend group. Because Linda chimes in, my mother doesn't even have a dressing gown, much less a white satin one. All she has is a brown terry cloth bathrobe. I know she'd never even let me wear that. And then Molly just kind of moves on. And she's like, well, I can tell you that our idea is much more original. And then Allison is so nice. She's like, I know being an angel is kind of boring. It's what my mom wants. Um, And I just love the pettiness where Molly like shoes her friends away. And she's like, we have to go. She's like, we can't. This, This interaction is too hot. They come, they like punch down at Allison for basically no reason. Like clearly Allison just wants to be their friend. Yep. And Molly's like, I can't believe that we outed like our potential ideal to her. Like we had to sit and listen to this. And then they move it along and start workshopping their Halloween (laughs) ideas, which, you know, like this gets a little, this is a, a moment when like the datedness of this act sort of jumps out, but their ideas are sort of fascinating where it's like, how do you get from A to B to C here where it's like, Cinderella. Yes. She wants to be Cinderella and convince her two friends to be the ugly stepsisters, which is a real flex. Like, honestly, to even like think about that and try to like try to get that going. But that sort of blows up in her face because she realizes her friend will have a better ball gown than the imaginary ball gown that doesn't even exist that she sort of wants. Yes. We also learn of a character, and this was kind of a shock to me. And I was like, Valerie, you never stop surprising me. Page 23, we learn about Jill and her best friend, Dolores. And I was like, girl. That stopped me in my tracks. I screamed. (laughs) I almost couldn't breathe. And it was just such a shock. 
And something I did remember so vividly. So there's sort of, there's all of this sort of like embarrassment because Ricky has a crush, right? And the girls are are kind of trying to make him embarrassed. And Ricky riding away on the bicycle in their perfect suburb saying, you'll be sorry, you'll pay for this is iconic. It's 100% iconic. Like this sent chills down my spine where I was like, <laughs> I know. this is haunting. This is haunting to me. And I also love that he's trying to work a rebrand with Dolores. Like he has a huge crush on her. Yeah. So he's trying to, he's like, I'm rich. Like he, he's like, and he's Ricky at home, rich on the street. Like it's just, yes. it's insane. But also my brother did this exact thing. And the rebrand also like went just as poorly as this one where he, at a certain point he was like, I'm Rick, or you can call me like Richard. And it was like really weird. And I was like, your name's Ricky. Like, I don't understand this. It was just like, it was exactly this. My brother's 11 months older than me. So we had a a similar dynamic of him like constantly getting in my way. But my brother never turned to me and pulled this move. Like this would have, this would have sent me for days. Also, like, I love the Dolores, like hot girl best friend, like showing up on the scene. We know like zero about her, except that Val gives us this one description she had a wide white smile like a movie star and a toothpaste ad. What is this reference? Like, <laughs> I feel like everything with Dolores is so weirdly specific to Val, where like she has a scrapbook in her house yes. with like a Dolores with a toothpaste ad. Like, I want to, like, if we could do an inside the actor's studio with Val Trip, which like we never can because no, like, we lawyers can't. wouldn't allow it, like, we would never get within six feet of her. I would just be like, Val, like if we could turn the lights down for a second, what does Dolores mean to you? Yeah. Like she's now in two books, prominent character, what's going on? But also the fact that Dolores means pain. Yeah. It's like pain is always in the periphery of these books. And like basically Molly could be a serial killer. I'm just going to say that. Like she could be a serial killer. Like her ability to plot far in advance, like that's where we're going with this, but it's it's actually very it's impressive or it's off putting depending on who who you are and the kind of person you are inside that you're bringing to this book. You're either writing a summary where it's like nothing happened and she's a narc, or you're like <laughs> Molly's ahead of her time and not appreciated. Something really refreshing, though, I think about Molly's story because we've read quite a few books now where the kids are smarter than the adults. Molly's mother is always further ahead than Molly. Always. And even when you like, so Molly has been scheming now for days. She ruined the turn up. She's had, you know, there's no way she's paying attention at school. She's taunting Ricky. And then her mother super casually, but you know, she's been planning this is like, I have another idea. I'll show you how to make a grass skirt out of newspaper and crepe paper. And you can be hula dancers. And like this was on no one's radar until Mrs. Like, M no pulled it out. Like we never saw this coming. Mrs. They M went from like, out. can we be three blind mice to this? Like she was like, absolutely. She's like from nowhere. Like this yeah. woman's not like, how <laughs> did we even know she was home? She didn't get home until the evening, the previous night. Suddenly in the afternoon, she's just casually there out of sight. And you just hear her say like, that's too much work. And I'm not spending nice fabric on like that during a war. No, like I'm not using it for Halloween costume Enter hula costume. She, I also appreciate that. Like it was the toss up between mouse and nurse that pulled her out of the woodwork where she was like, I am not having you be a mouse and you are absolutely not being a nurse. Like she did not work this hard for her position with the red cross to have Molly 
Absolutely out and not. about for another year as a nurse. I kind of wonder if she was like, I'm an animal activist, so I will not have this exploitation of mice, but I will let you engage in some weird imperial cosplay that's completely inappropriate. <laughs> yes. So we should talk about what Molly is doing with the hula skirt kind of in the context of World War II, like kind of the significance of this choice for her and her friends. Um, also love that she's like, I wore a little perfume. Was like, she's like, that's for you to... She's like, happy Halloween. I wore a little perfume. <laughs> also, the beautiful detail of Ricky was dressed as a pirate. Ricky was a pirate every year. Like, Valerie doesn't leave you wondering exactly no. who someone is. She's like, this is she, a man yeah. so devoid of personality. He immediately falls in love with his older sister's best friend, Delore, and just and acts he, as a pirate. Like, this man thinks he has a shot when he's dressing up as a pirate every year. No. And he's 12. And he's 12. So it's like, that's over here. So much happening. But yeah. So let's get into the hula of it all. I mean, I remember this costume because this is an outfit that you could buy for Molly. Yes. Back in the day. And I think until like, I don't know what year they finally retired it. But I mean, this was not something that was like here and gone. No. Um, as has happened with some of the other kind of problematic or loaded accessories for different dolls. But yeah, so let's get into the Hawaii of it all, the hula aesthetic that was everywhere. If you actually go into Chronicling America, which is this really awesome um, database of digitized newspapers from across the country that the Library of Congress hosts, you can narrow the years down to the war years and search um, hula and you will see images, lots of images of white women entertainers wearing hula outfits. So Molly is actually, Molly's mom is sort of like reflecting a much broader trend in this moment. I read an interesting review of this book and the other two meet, you know, character books from the year that they came out. And it was a book for, or sorry, a review rather for librarians, like sort of should, should you acquire these books or should hmm. you not? And um, the way that they kind of summarize this book is interesting. Molly's doctor father is with the army in England and her mother is working for the Red Cross. Molly battles the housekeeper over a plate of mashed turnips, agonizes over Halloween costumes with friends, and plots revenge on brother Rich. I love that she goes with Rich. She's like, when, I believe him. If he says this rebranding is real, I'm going with it. She's like, that's his name. When he ruins the girl's costumes and treats. Um, and this person's opening line is, three nine-year-old girls are the focus of these introductory volumes. All three are bland and superficial, and the girls seem more like paper dolls than characters. Uh-huh. Yeah. We know where she comes down on Molly McIntyre. Yeah, it's it's not good. Um, this this did seem, I think for me as a young person, I think I probably would have filed this as just being like any other costume, but knowing at the time the significance of Pearl Harbor, which would have happened in this case just about two years prior, because this mm-hmm. is set in October 1943, right. and knowing that when Molly is 11 years old, Hawaii will become a state. Hawaii is making headlines all the time. Hawaii is making headlines all the time, but culturally there's this appropriation that's actually kind of stepping way up at this moment in American culture. So like not to state the obvious, but Hawaii is not a state during World War II. Right. Putting that out there. But also, but Hawaii has been a long-term kind of colony of a lot of um, attempts to take over its natural resources 
to kind of um, quiet or like basically extinguish Native Hawaiian culture, of which hula is a part. Um, and we'll share this link, but I found I love a lot of what Teen Vogue does. Like a lot of their writing is really amazing. But they featured actually a young woman who told this story where she literally tears up about how hurtful it is to see people even now dressing in hula outfits for Halloween because her own grandmother grew up at a time when hula was discouraged and even illegal. In the 1800s, hula was made illegal in an attempt to kind of eliminate Native Hawaiian culture so that um, foreign invaders could come in and and just totally homogenize and take over um, and wipe out the Native culture. And so she's basically saying, my grandmother's in her 70s. She's learning how to hula dance now because she couldn't do it as a child. And she's making her first hula skirt, which looks nothing like the Halloween costumes. And she was like, it just so it's so offensive to me, to our culture, to real attempts to erase it. And I think it gets at, for Halloween in particular, and a lot of the problematic costumes, it's like Halloween is a night when people think they're turning the natural order of things upside down. Mm. So for white people to wear costumes of non-white cultural groups is like their way of reflecting that. And it's obviously completely inappropriate. But in this moment, at least, because of Pearl Harbor, because of a lot of these things going on, like Hawaiian culture is actually in the mainstream. And you will find albums by popular singers like Bing Crosby is the most popular singer in the country at this moment and the Andrew sisters in which they're singing Hawaiian songs. And we actually get a reference in this book to Molly McIntyre's mom playing a Hawaiian record for her as the girls make their skirts. And it's like the fact that she can throw to a record in her house tells you a lot about how pervasive this is, but it's a very specific vision of like white people's version of Hawaiian culture. So it's like, it kind of sounds awkward. Like I've heard this music and it's kind of sounds awkward. Um, and that's kind of how the costume plays too. And, you know, obviously Molly's nine years old. I don't think she has any knowledge of like the very long, complicated history of Hawaiian, Hawaiian imperialism. But it's worth us thinking about this now that, I mean, for her, part of her privilege is the blindness to this. Um, and I actually think there is a lot of blindness running through this book, even uh, not to jump to the end, but in the peak into the past, you actually get a very brief narrative about what causes World War II. Yes. And something that's not mentioned one time is the Holocaust. Right. And I think this idea of blindness to privilege, which would allow some of us to say, and look, when I read this book when I was nine, I had no idea about any of this. I thought Molly looked cool. Um, but, you know, that blindness is itself a privilege. And it's sort of like in a meta way mirrored in the peak into the past, into our own reading experience that, you know, people living in World War II had access to knowledge of the Holocaust. It was being reported while it was happening in Time Magazine, in the newspaper. We can post to exhibits that are about this from the Jewish um, National Museum. But it's sort of like the privilege of your life is you can turn off things that you think don't apply to you. Mm -hmm. So that kind of blindness, I think, is what's driving the hula presentation and the presentation of the war in the back of the book. I was going to bring up hula hoops, but that feels you like- should. No, 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 you should because this this doesn't end with World War II. It's not like okay, yeah. we had Pearl Harbor in Hawaii during World War II, then Hawaiian imperialism stopped. It's it's like Elvis is in blue Hawaii in like what 1961 hula hoops, which you know more about than I do. Oh, oh gosh, no, no. But <laughs> I think I think to your point because you know we always try to look at these as products of the 1980s. So right. when this book was being written, World War nobody freak out, but World War II was as far away as the early 1980s are to us today. Allison, nobody freak please out, don't do that. But don't do um, that to me. 
That's as much math as you'll hear on this podcast ever. Thank you. That said, when they did a kind of rebranding in the early 2000s, so the version of the book that I have, Molly is actually the only character to have her cover image replaced. So Mm. in the original iteration, Molly is in the sweater, right? She has her her classic beret and her matching skirt. In the version that I have, which is from the early 2000s recreation, a lot of the illustrations are different and Molly is doing a hula pose on the cover and she is the only one out of these historical characters to get a different meat cover. Hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's on purpose. It was a choice that was done. Um, As you were talking to, I think a a way to kind of get at this is the way that the book ends. So basically to get back at Molly for embarrassing him, uh, Ricky overreacts because he's <laughs> fragile Why and 12. And so he sprays water on, on Molly and her friends, and then they kind of get back at him by throwing his underwear out when a girl is nearby and he is playing basketball, long story short. But what happens with this is the mother, who again is kind of always like eyes and ears, reprimands all of them for fighting. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, like she's also probably clearly had it. It's been a long week. (laughs) And in what I think is, is very clever. She gets them to take on chores. So Ricky or Rich is for, I'm calling him Ricky. He's forced to rake the yard. And then Molly and her friends as punishment are forced to clean all of the underwear that they had thrown out the window, which that was gross. Yeah. I didn't particularly love that, but, um, she kind of gives them this lecture where she says, this fighting has to stop. This is exactly what starts wars. And I was like, no, No. (laughs) I was like, I, I to your point, I was like, I don't really know that that's it. Like I've been a big fan of Mrs. M until now. She says two sides decide to get even and end up hurting each other. There's war and fighting enough in the world and I won't have any more of it in our house. Is that understood? I was like, I, I don't huh? know that this is it. This um, is them. It's like, I think she's like, look, I don't think they'll understand extractive capitalism, racism and anti-Semitism, and like probably egomania as like true causes and like diplomatic relations gone awry. But at the same time, it's like, Mrs. M, what are you doing here? It like, I think it gives this false understanding that like every, there are two sides to every story and every conflict. Yes. Which is not a healthy lesson as a kid to learn because like if you're in a situation where somebody is harming you, like that's not, it, it implies that like you must have, you must be at fault in some degree and you're not. So it's like, that is, that's a very weird Mrs. M moment. It also, I mean, Pearl Harbor, it's interesting to me, is directly invoked on page 55, but is not really mentioned as being linked to Hawaii or Molly's awareness of Hawaii, obviously, or Hawaiian people as a place. Many American soldiers and sailors were killed in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. People all over the United States were angry and wanted to fight back. Um, And I think part of what I mean, it's not specific to these two wars, but I think part of what we've observed and talked about, heard in teaching, all these different things, people really have an investment in believing that just about everyone wanted to participate in World War I and World War II. And it's mm-hmm. not true. Mm-mm. And I, I think the way that this is written, there's an erasure to your larger point, one of causes of the war and other forms of suffering, but also the fact that like, American people who are occupying 
Hawaii and Pearl Harbor as part of a colonization effort, yes, they are victims, but they are signaled as the only victims of this, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to sit with sometimes that it's like, you know, you can be both a victim and an aggressor mm-hmm. in a, like a larger historical frame. Like I remember reading this book, the Comanche empire, which really hit that home for me that I've always thought about the Comanche as like the victims of American imperialism. And yet this history really shows you that they themselves were imperialists, um, which, you know, it seems like a basic point, but it's worth kind of reading stuff like that, that sort of reaffirms that for you. I also, I mean, I have a lot of work to do because this peak into the past taught me that women um, didn't have jobs before World War II. So yeah, that was rough to hear. I mean, I don't know. So like when you do tours of the mills, is it like, do you just talk about men or? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I've, I guess I've been confused, but I, I think this really, now that I understand this book differently, I think a lot of what this speaks to is about class and, and is about the mm. way in which like certain kinds of work weren't really val- valued the way that they should have been. And I mean, part of what this is talking about um, is women who enter very specific clerical, industrial, and, and military adjacent jobs or, or the military itself in the 1940s as a result of the war. And particularly this year, I was doing a talk on World War II. And what struck me more and more and more was the extent to which um, in the United States, when people don't really want to pay for a service, they call it unskilled, Mm -hmm. Um, no matter what kind of skills might be involved. And this sentence just kind of popped into my brain, which was, um, you know, thinking about women doing factory work across time, owners wanted to pay less, so they hired women. Owners didn't want the women to stay or to have to really like offer them any long term. So they called the work unskilled. And and it's really sometimes as simple as these rhetorical flourishes to convince people that women shouldn't want to stay in this kind of work. They should gladly cede these positions to men when they return. And I think what's fascinating is the mental work that goes into saying, um, much like in our own pandemic, oh, these people are essential, but they're not skilled. They're right. Yeah. Exactly. And heroic, but we don't actually need them and they shouldn't be paid a living wage. And there's a lot of that going on in World War II where women entering factory work are really desperate for like basic kinds of support or non-financial compensation and recognition. And there's this gap between like them being treated as heroic, but them also not having basic needs met. Like Guilford is there in part because there aren't other support networks to take care of these kids. Right. And also like Guilford herself is probably a fascinating case of like in the history (laughs) of social, like social security, like what if her labors in her life are considered work and what aren't and what is skilled and not skilled? Like maybe she was a mother herself who stayed home and kept her own home, so to speak. That is surely labor and caretaking to the same degree, if not more than what she's providing for the McIntyres. She's paid for the McIntyres. She's not paid. And it doesn't, she doesn't really get compensated in her social security for the year she spent taking care of her own children. Like that's somehow not labor. If your name is Guilford, call us. You might be entitled to compensation. Are you safe? Also, it's like Nellie, like is, is probably screaming. Yes. Like, I'm sorry, her labor is not considered skilled or labor. It's like her job never existed. Her piecework job, her factory job, her job working as a maid, like all of that stuff was skilled labor and actual jobs. But based on the peak into the past, it's like 
man, Val just wrote her out once again. It's like, Val, what are you doing? There's also such a gulf because you and I were talking off air about, you know, having done research into different war periods in the U.S. There's such a distance between the way people want to remember how they've appreciated people's sacrifices during wartime and then reactions today to what I would say are not even really sacrifices, but basic courtesies that are being asked of people, right? Like there's this incredible romanticization of women across time who've been in sewing circles or done homespun in the 18th century, all the way up to women gardening during World War I and World War II. And then the extent to which people really don't even recognize or appreciate people who are sacrificing right now or or suffering through austerity and the way that people really are suffering. And I think a lot of people are giving up a lot of their life for the greater good. And I, I don't think it would be written about this way. No. And also kind of like the ways that we go from sort of like valorizing essential workers to then saying like, oh, well, that's just how things go Mm -hmm. when they're the first ones whose jobs are cut. Like there's a lot of reporting right now around nursing homes, particularly in New York, that had a lot, were the subject of a lot of reporting months ago for, you know, how dark it was there. Like the mortality rate was so high and it was so dangerous for um, the CNAs and the work caregivers to be there um, without a lot of protective gear in a lot of cases. And they were exposing themselves and living apart from their families so as not to expose them. And it was like really like these heroic articles about them. And now those same nursing homes, because of budget cuts, are laying off those workers first. Yes. So, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a tragic situation and one that sort of keeps repeating. Also kind of the branding of internships that came up too for me of like skilled versus unskilled or ways of like putting a boundary around work that you actually essentially need done in your organization that you're sort of pretending is just sort of like, you know, a privilege that you're offering. So you don't have to provide people actual money and benefits. I think too about workplaces, and this is mentioned in here, workplaces that honored people who died in the line of duty. And in World War One, that would also include like women who were nurses to people who died of influenza or, or died in the course of the war. And the way that people put these gold stars in their window and I think I picture that and I think about it really differently now because of COVID because that's, there's honestly something really haunting about that to me in a way that I don't, I don't think I could have really wrapped my head around it one or two years ago, but to really think of coming into work every day, knowing that people are risking their lives and having read some oral histories, part of the work that that is also doing in terms of men, intentional or not, is there are men who carry tremendous guilt for the rest of their life that they don't serve for, for whatever reason. Right. And so part of what that work is doing is saying like, you know, at, at least you're not being remembered just as a gold star, you know, and, yeah. and just kind of the trauma of having to live with that. And I think you and I have done a lot of talking and I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to talk as we go through Molly about World War II as sort of the good war and and what it accomplishes. And I think living through COVID or looking at the way that the wars we're engaged in now are pretty much ignored by most people and a lot of the media. I think part of the work that that does as a culture is it it lets you cope on some level, like that that there had to be something good about this. And I think where this pandemic has been so hard is it's hard to find anything right about it. Right. 
Right. We're, we're not, we're not really talking in a clear way about sacrifice. We're not really talking about those things and the dead really are not memorialized at all. I think it all comes down to storytelling. Mm. Like I, one of my favorite quotations of all time is Joan Didion saying, we tell ourselves stories in order to live because it's my way of like thinking with like stories are really helpful for me to think with when I'm trying to make sense of like what's happening in 2020 or like in 1943 in Molly's world or whatever's going on. And I think the stories at the beginning of the pandemic that people were telling were like, oh, it's so good that not good, but like all this time we're having to spend at home means we're having to like bond with our families. Like we're having to spend more time with our loved ones. Like, isn't that amazing for our family units? And that's one story. And now it's like, well, what's actually happening to the health of the individual, which also really matters. And a lot of forced together time is maybe not always the thing that you need. Or now you feel selfish if you're like, I would like some time apart from my family. Mm. And how do I tell a story about that that's meaningful or helpful to family? I don't know. I mean, I just think a lot about like the changing stories of COVID as we're months into this with no signs of stopping, it seems. Um, like, how do we tell ourselves stories that help us get through it? Like, ultimately, you're right. Like, we need a story that is, is a mechanism of meaning making. World War II gets commemorated the most because the stories we can tell about it or Tom Brokaw and others have told about it is that it was triumphalist. It was for this moral high ground of ending the Holocaust. And yet that's what's so fascinating to me about Peek into the Past that the Holocaust isn't mm. even mentioned. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see kind of what other stories emerge as we continue here. Do you have a clearer story in your mind of Molly McIntyre experiencing the 1940s or literally any member of your family experiencing the 1940s at this time? Um, I would say my grandmother's experience of the 1940s is like the most fresh in my mind compared to Molly McIntyre. Like I know that my grandmother, my grandmother's mother was a cook in a hospital. So the way they made it through the great depression was that my grandmother could bring home scraps and that's what they ate. And then my grandmother's like relative was a nun at a Catholic college. So my grandmother got to go to college during world war II and basically like would sneak out at night. They locked the kitchen because of the food rationing. And my grandmother like slid across a roof on her stomach with her friend and like shimmy down a pipe and broke into the kitchen and would steal pies and hide them <laughs> under the bed and eat them. Like that's, these are like things that I remember about the war, but notably my grandmother never talked as Molly also doesn't talk about why the war was happening or why it was meaningful. And I think that's important. Like that distance or dislocation from like your lived experience every day from like the larger meaning that people often retrospectively put on to huge events is something that, you know, I experience. But what about you? I, I think I objectively know more about Molly. I think I know bits and pieces from research I've done, but there are quite a few strangers in the world that I could tell, I think, their World War II story in, in some pretty good texture because of what I've been able to find far, far more than people I'm blood related to, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and I mean, part of that is just the chronology of, of my life and, and when I was born. Um, but I, I am always kind of struck by that, that, you know, this is a conversation we have. Molly is not that far away from us you know, in terms of chronology or, or genealogy and Molly's experience, I think of the war or, or lack of experience with some aspects of the war, I think is probably more real to some people than any other person who actually lived through it. I mean, so the power of stories, like we've talked about this as a conduit to learning about it, but, um, well, it's like, but think about men who talk about band of brothers where mm -hmm. it's like, 
they talk about it. Like I have friends, like male friends, relatives, and I've seen it myself, like who got so invested in that show that it was almost like they fought that war. And like, they almost have like a contact fatigue with it when it's over. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe we made it through that. Or the experience of watching the opening scene of saving private Ryan, um, all of these like cultural, you know, markers of world war two, which notably center the experience of white men, like, but yeah, I, I think there there is something to that that we can probably replicate the the stories or experiences of fictional characters or of historical characters um, or figures that we know about, maybe in some ways more than our own families, and that probably speaks too to the what you're saying before about the fatigue people have with suffering. That when the war's over, when the Great Depression's over, it's like I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And some of that was culturally like repression, like do not talk about your mental illness or your what we would now call PTSD because we don't want to hear it. Um, but also probably like natural exhaustion with it. Like I just lived through this really huge thing. I thankfully things are better for me now. I don't want to like voluntarily go back there and think and feel my way into those memories. Like I don't want to do it. I'm really excited to see you know, as this book goes on and we kind of like meet more characters, because I know the father does become, you know, much more of a, an immediate character. Like I think we meet him at some point um, and Molly meets a refugee in the form of Emily Bennett. But I'm kind of excited to see her learn more about the war and what it is that she learns and how she processes it. And I think this book was really smart with accessing what is probably a memory for every single person at some point of either being forced to do something you don't want to do or that feeling of stubbornness that you have when you're at different points in your life that you just don't want to give in and do something that you don't want to do. And I think it does a good job of accessing those universals before taking us into the war. Yeah. I think that's a really smart move on Val's part. I, I want to give her credit for that. I think she, I think like knowing how to reference or tap into a reader's sense memory mm. before then taking them to think a thing for which they have no memory and sort of creating a felt memory is a really interesting and smart approach. And I mean, you know, a few generations later, we have Michelle Obama trying to make turn up cool again. Oh my God. Her garden iconic. I love that she before. So I just read her memoir, which I've been like waiting to read for a long time. But, um, what's fascinating in her writing about that garden is that she purposefully in the last few months of her husband's presidency made permanent a lot of the physical space of that garden. Like she had permanent landscaping features installed Hmm. and secured private funding to actually fund um, the labor and the upkeep of the garden, in addition to the National Park Service also being partly responsible, so that she could future proof um, anyone trying to get rid of it. Because the Clintons tried to make a garden when Bill was president, and they were told like it went against the aesthetic of the White House, like it wasn't done. So they they grew vegetables on the roof, I guess? Question mark. Um, Jimmy Carter didn't want to grow vegetables because he thought that like misrepresented farming Mm. question mark and Eleanor Roosevelt made one during the war, which is the biggest question mark of all, because if you know anything about her, she was a horrible cook who never cooked herself. And she hired a terrible cook for the white house to the point that no one wanted to come for dinner there. Cause they were like, please don't make me sit and eat likely turnip. So in a way like Michelle Obama, like, thank you for writing a lot of historical wrongs and like being so savvy about it. Okay, how me is that Eleanor story where she's like this huge promoter of this victory garden culture and you would do this. I mean, as a kind of telling anecdote, years ago, I went to the Hull House Museum and I bought 
jarred. I I almost don't even, I'm having like a, I don't know what to call them. What does it look like? It was like pickled product. It was like pickles of some kind and like green beans. I don't know. It it was gross. Right. But I wanted to buy something to support an initiative they had there. Was I ever going to eat that product? I wouldn't even know where to begin to be honest with you. So it's still sitting in its canned glory seven, eight years later. Yeah. I mean, you've never seen Allison and I panic. And let, like one time when we had a friend getting married and another friend was like, I'm going to collect recipes from everyone to give to this friend, like as a shower gift. And we were both like, er, excuse me, you want a recipe from us? I mean, I think part of the beauty of, you know, I sense this a little bit from Molly too, is like appreciating other people's gifts. You know, you know that Guilford is invested in the garden. So you appreciate it. You lean into it but it doesn't have to be what you bring to the world. That's what I tell myself. That is, that's absolutely true. And I just want to leave you with this. I read just now that one of our heroes, Queen Elizabeth, goes to McDonald's every few months. And it's like, that's beautiful. So if she cops to that, that means she's there every other week. Because I think I would give a similar answer and I'm there all the time. I love Mickey D's. Like, I know it's problematic probably and like bad for me, but it's like every blue moon, I love to go to him like a McDonald's. There's not one that's super close to me. So it is like a real choice. So you know what? You have to be kind to yourself in these moments. That's all I have to say. Molly sat with Turnip so that we could run. I mean, not run literally to McDonald's, but drive to McDonald's. That's true. And I think we've, we've emerged unscathed from this experience and this World War II experience in a way that others who have engaged with World War II pop culture have not. And I'm just like thinking of and holding a moment of silence for Ben Affleck, star of Pearl Harbor, who emerged from that fake war experience by getting ultimately a tragic back tattoo and, yes. you know, withering in a spawn con, you know, wasteland. I don't really know what's happening for him. Moment of silence. I will say too, we are putting out this episode the same week as Veterans Day. And wow. so you know, I've done a lot of reading around kind of the concept of people, um, you know, thanking service people for their troops and, and what does gratitude really look like, right, for people who decide to serve their country in any capacity. And I think, you know, anytime those dates on the calendar pop up, it's a good time to kind of read those pieces or engage with that and just kind of think about it. And it is no coincidence that we are sandwiching this Molly book right between Halloween and Veterans Day, because I think her book is really actually an interesting meditation on those different poles in our culture. Yeah. And I think kind of thinking about the purposeful blindness and the privilege of blindness, like is something I always reflect on around Veterans Day because I myself have not served. Um, I have family members who have, and I get to sort of live my life because, you know, this doesn't touch my life directly. But so reading, taking on reading things about people's experiences, I think is a really important thing to do just to think with throughout the year, not just on that day. And also living with or like thinking with about the concept of living memorials. So leaving Mm -hmm. aside the controversy over actual like physical memorials, thinking about the ways that we can support living memorials for um, still living service people and veterans um, who are dealing with, in many cases, like very serious challenges not to bring us down. Also, like there's really no charity for Ben Affleck. So I, I, I trust he'll be okay, like question mark. But I saw a photo of him at Dunk. So I'm sure like he's fine. 
he'll he'll never he'll never stop running on the fuel of that so he's he's okay i guess he's fine but i'm very excited for our next episode cannot truly cannot wait for this like to see where this journey is going it also made me really excited to read um nanea's story someday like when we get to that um so i'm i'm so thrilled to be part of this to be back with val like who knows where she's gonna take us truly we've lived that i can't wait and if people want to reach out to you, Mary, how should they do that? Like, you know what? You can find me on the shores of Alaska, you know, during crab season, watching Deadliest Catch these days, or on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter <laughs> at Mary Mahoney123. And if folks would love to pass along like a really treasured recipe that's going to actually mm. convert you from a consumer to a chef, where might they reach you? So I, I don't know how successful that will be, but you are more than welcome to message me at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And we love when you reach out to the show at a girl's pod and American girls podcast on Instagram which is also where you'll find the link to our merch store, which we would love if you would check that out. Um, We're going to be adding more soon. So there's always lots of great sales. um, And it's always fun too when you show us things that you've purchased. We love to see the emails come in that people are getting a sticker or a sweatshirt. Um, And some of you wore your uh, American Girls gear to go vote, which made us very happy. Oh my God, that was so emotional. And yeah, please like tag us in photos because we love Mm -hmm. seeing you guys out and about in the world wearing the shirts and so on. And, you know, join, thank you for those who have joined our Patreon. Um, and also we will give, be giving more details about this probably at our next show, but we are doing a, an event in December Yes, that people can buy tickets for on the history of friendship and join us. It's going to be really cool. Thanks for being our friend. Wow. That was good. Thank you.